This is Catholic Daily Brief. Episode 4. Does objective morality exist? Now that term, objective morality, means morality that's true for everyone. It's not subjective. It doesn't depend on the person's view of good and evil. Are there such thing as objective, unchanging moral values of good and evil? Again, describing this process of natural apologetics, this was third in line after does God exist? And do we have immortal souls? Because if you recall, once solving the question of God's existence, the next question that arises is, do I meet him? Does my soul survive the death of my body? Is there some kind of encounter with God after my bodily death? And we concluded that yes, the soul does exist, a spiritual immortal soul does exist, and it does survive the death of the body. So the next question to ask, and the reason that this is third in line, in natural apologetics is now given that we do have some encounter with God or at least some encounter with God is possible after death we consider how do we live if there is a moral law I ought to abide by it because that seems like it might be in my best interest if an almighty God exists and if I meet him at some point you might recall we talked about C.S. Lewis's famous book, Mere Christianity, and how he tackled the issue of objective morality and how our experience of morality, the universal experience of morality throughout history and across the world, with no exceptions really, is a sign of a moral lawgiver. He uses that to prove that God exists. And our argument to prove that there is objective morality is kind of similar to the process that he took. And that is, there is no greater proof than our experience, our own moral experience. There's no reason to doubt our moral experience any more than there is reason to doubt our physical experience, the experience of the physical world around us. Some provocative college student in freshman philosophy might be wowed by the idea that, hey man, Maybe all reality is an illusion. Well, the best thing to do in that situation is kick him in the shins. Not really, but you get the point. People can theorize and guess that, hey, maybe we're all in the matrix and everything we're experiencing is just an illusion or just the result of some uh, program that's being run in our brains. You can say that all you want. The fact remains that there's really no proof for that, and the surety of our own experience of the physical world vastly outweighs any theoretical idea of it being an illusion. So the argument for objective moral reality, objective moral law, is kind of analogous or parallel to that argument for physical reality, objective physical reality around us. Our moral experience is just as objective and just as obvious 
and just as pervasive as our experience of the physical world. It's a different kind of thing, but it's just as sure to us as anything else. And just how you have people theorizing that perhaps the external world is an illusion or it doesn't exist, whether they're claiming that honestly or dishonestly, they don't live as if that were true. And the proof that reality is an illusion is just not there. The overwhelming testimony of our experience is that the physical world is real. Like I said, someone might say, hey, this is all an illusion. But if you kick them in the shin, they're not going to like that. Similarly, people that claim that objective morality doesn't exist don't live as if that's true. We kind of heard that in our discussion of C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity. The overwhelming experience of a human's life is that there are certain things that are good and to be pursued, and other things are to be avoided, and they are evil. Now, of course, there are disagreements about what belongs in which category, but the fact that there are objective moral standards that we attempt to live by and we expect other people to live by, that's just so clear that unless you have some kind of what uh, Dr. William Lane Craig calls a defeater to your experience, some strong proof that is uh, strong enough to outweigh your overwhelming experience of objective morality, your internal experience of moral right and wrong, the rebuke of your conscience when you do evil, unless you have something stronger than that, then there really is no burden of proof on you to claim that there is objective morality. In fact, the burden of proof is on those who deny such an obvious reality. In fact, there are even atheists that admit this. There's a, a philosopher named Louise Antony who says, quote, any argument for moral skepticism will be based upon premises which are less obvious than the existence of objective moral values themselves, end quote. So it's a really uphill battle for those who wish to deny objective morality because it's such a part of our life. It's such an obvious part of our uh, existence, much like our experience of the physical external world around us. There are those who deny objective morality and say that our experience of, quote, good and evil is just the product of evolution, that our behaviors evolved in a certain way as to be advantageous to the community and things that were disadvantageous to the community were considered evil. But is that really a satisfying account of morality? To say that what was advantageous for the community came to be considered good and what was disadvantageous to the community was considered evil? Is that the only account of good and evil? Take something morally repugnant such as rape or child abuse the account of such a person would be, these things are considered evil, not in themselves, but because they're disadvantageous to the community. Now we react strongly against that. We know, we recognize those things are evil in themselves. Are we really to say that if evolution had gone a different route, that rape and child abuse would be considered good and caring for uh, a spouse or another person caring for a child would be considered evil? It just makes no sense. It's totally foreign to our experience. And so to claim that evolution simply ingrained in us to do what's advantageous for the community and to avoid what's disadvantageous to the community, and that's all that evil is, makes no sense. On this view of the world, what Hitler did is not evil in itself, but just distasteful to us. We have no real argument against it other than, hey, that mass slaughter of people was disadvantageous to the community. And that's all we could say. 
We can't browbeat or scold anyone for being evil. All we can say is, I don't like what you did. It's disadvantageous to me or to the community. That's just not how we want to respond to real grave moral evils. It's easy to try and make that argument when you're dealing with little things like stealing. Stealing's wrong because it's disadvantageous to the community. That sounds plausible. But rape, child abuse, torture, those are wrong only because they're disadvantageous to the community? I don't think so. We're all very aware that there's something deeper going on in our experience of good and evil. The difference between Hitler and Mother Teresa is much more profound than one did what was advantageous to the community and one harmed the community. That's a very reductive and unsatisfying description of the difference between those two historical figures. Consider also that this evolutionist view of morality conflicts with other elements of evolutionary theory, such as survival of the fittest, natural selection. How do we integrate those with the supposed evolved morality of doing what is best for the community? Furthermore, evolved habits such as doing what is good for the community would not admit of so many instances of departing from that. How many people consistently act that way? If that's a habit that we evolved to have, then you would see it much more predominant. Even more convincing than this theoretical discussion of how objective morality came about is just looking at the way we all live. We all live recognizing that certain things are good and certain things are evil. Even if we want to deny that they're binding or that they're objective, we still live as if they are. Or at least we live as if the other person ought to behave as if there's objective good and evil. And that's more telling than anything else. We're so convinced of the reality of a moral law that we cannot help but live that way. Outside of a psychopath or a sociopath, I don't think you can find someone who denies that objective morality exists and also lives consistently with that belief. I don't think you can find such a person. Even the more bold and outspoken atheists of history, those that denied the existence of morality or claimed that moral law was invented by religious people to keep the strong at bay and to protect the weak. I bet even someone like Nietzsche, if you went up and kneed him in the groin, he'd say that you did something wrong. Think about how awful it would be to live life as a nihilist. Nihilism is the rejection of any meaning in life, of any morality, of any truth. To believe, as the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre says, life is absurd. Think about that kind of existence. And think about trying to live with the belief that the things that are praised in our society, such as courage and, and love and selflessness and justice, that those things are just conventions and things could be otherwise. That in another world, in another circumstance, cowardice could be praised, courage be considered bad, that love would be considered bad and hate would be considered good. Our mind just doesn't accept that. And that's why many people that tried to hold to this view of life and morality 
who went insane or lived awful lives or suffered from depression. Go research the lives of Friedrich Nietzsche and Jean-Paul Sartre and tell me if that's the kind of life that you want to live. Unfortunately, it's worldviews like theirs that are more and more prevalent in our world. These ideas are propagated in schools and universities. That's why you have such a spike in depression nowadays. If you try to live life thinking that there's no meaning, even if it's covered up with language of making your own meaning or plowing your own path and living for yourself, at the end of the day, what's deep down inside us rejects that because it's an attempt to suppress reality and to hide from reality and to ignore the objective moral law and the joy to be had in pursuing good and cultivating virtue. So basically the conclusion is to trust your moral experience in just the same way that you trust your senses, that the external world around you is real, so too your inner experience of good and evil is real. Anyone who claims otherwise is on far shakier ground and has very little to support their argument. So having considered the fact that there is in fact a lot of proof that there is objective good and evil and that our moral experience is correct, the next obvious question is, well, what are those things that are good and evil, and how do we come to know them? And remember, in this process, we're doing so outside of divine revelation, so just using our reason. So how do we reason to the moral law that we claim is inside all of us by nature? Well, that belongs to the study of something called the natural law, and that's what we'll discuss in the next episode. If you want to do any further reading on this, I recommend a book by, you guessed it, Dr. Edward Fazer. It's a book called The Last Superstition. It's an excellent book about uh, new atheism and debunking the arguments of uh, atheists nowadays, but it has a particularly helpful chapter on the natural law and how we come to know the specifics of that natural law, which in Divine Revelation is summarized in the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. Thank you for listening to Catholic Daily Brief. Again, if you find these podcasts helpful, please subscribe or follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give us a good rating. God bless.